Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the End of Sports podcast. Uh, the End of Sport podcast. I'm sorry. I got the name wrong. That was a good start. Um, we're feeling chippy today, as usual. So um, hopefully we'll get a little ranty for you. Um, my name is Nathan Coleman lamb and the other two voices you're going to hear today off the top are, uh, Derek Silva and Johanna Mellis, but I don't actually really like it when I say like, how are you, Derek? And then Derek says, hi. So we'll skip that part. <laughs> you'll just, you'll just know that those are their voices. You've probably listened to us before anyway. Um, listen, let me just start ranting right off the top here. Uh, if you don't mind, um, in our last episode, we had Jules Boykoff on the show to talk about the Olympic games. It has since come to our attention that Jules has been subjected to an incredibly disingenuous campaign led by IOC PR guru uh, Michael R. Payne, as well as others involved in the Olympedia project, whatever the fuck that is. I, I literally don't know what that is, but Derek might know about it now. Um, and what they're trying to do is essentially to deflect from Jules' ongoing critique of the Olympic movement by calling his personal credentials as an athlete into question. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds on the question of those credentials. Frankly, I wasted enough time on Twitter doing that. And you can check my feed if you're interested in those details. But like what we're really talking about here is, is like arguing with these people about those credentials is the same as arguing with the GOP about the specifics of critical race theory. The point is not what is true and what is false. The point is to smear an opponent and undermine their project. And that's what's happening to Jules here. But anyway, let me just make this abundantly clear because this is really the point. Anyone who takes cash from the IOC has zero moral authority whatsoever to challenge a critic of the Olympic Games about absolutely anything. Michael Payne, who, by the way, is a buddy of F1 honcho and Hitler apologist Bernie Ecclestone, has made a career selling the abomination of the Olympics. The, Olymp the Olympedia folks are also funded by the Olympics. None of them have the credibility to say a word to Boykoff or any other critic of the Games. And, you know, that's really all I have to say. Do you guys have anything to say about that? I mean, the only thing I'd I'd add is, I mean, I'm like laughing, trying to hold back laughter as you're as you're talking about this, because the whole thing is just so ridiculous. And it's so easy to poke holes in all of this, because these are people who are funded by the Olympic Project, um, which is just like blood, blood money through and through. And then also the kind of random academics who like chimed in to like you know, negate little specific points that totally misses the bigger picture, right? Who are, who are, who are contributing to this diversion tactic. And that's what it is, right? This is a diversion tactic and, and it is a smear campaign. And I don't say diversion to like belittle what it is they're doing to Jules because that's absolutely not the case, but they are choosing to deflect attention rather than actually address all of the enormous, really horrifying issues that are going on with the Olympic games that have been going on for over a century. And Joanna, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, these people who call themselves historians and what they do is collect facts. I mean, it's terrible. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong about that as an actual historian, but like, it just, it seems really embarrassing to me that you would even claim to be a professional historian if what you actually do is collect facts. That's something that like I was capable of doing as a high school student. Um, you know, historians do historiography. Historians do original archival work. Historians think. Um, they don't put facts up on a website, but that's just No, me. I mean, this is the whole kind of public debate we have going on about facts and truth, right, and veracity. And, and, and also, I mean, there are different kinds of historians, and there are people who maybe don't have, for, for a wide variety of reasons, maybe don't have the credentials that I have. And so I, I don't want to, like, belittle people who 
for, you know, reasons that they can't, you know, choose, haven't been able to get kind of a, a graduate education or maybe even a BA in history, whatever, because some of those people still do good work. But there are <clears throat> those people who proclaim to be quote unquote historians, as you're saying, that literally just repeat specific certain facts, right? They say that they are sticking to the facts and they say they're sticking to the truth, but what they're doing is they're, they're buying in and they're entrenching a, a specific narrative without actually critically analyzing it, which is what as historians, we all need to be doing. And as scholars, we all need to be doing. And so, the, I mean, there's a bit of a, I don't want to say debate, but this is kind of something within the field of sport history in general is that we do have more public oriented historians and people that, you know, work and really um, do really great and amazing legitimate work. And then there are the people who just kind of throw up, you know, like a bunch of facts and then are not willing to critically analyze the Olympic Games, for example, to kind of refer or sort of subtweet a specific conversation on, on, on a Facebook group. Um, that the Olympic project is fundamentally fraud and it's been fundamentally harmful from the beginning. But the people who just want to stick to the facts, I want to stick to the fact that the Olympics unifies people all over the globe and actually has more moral authority than, you know, many of the European imperial powers of the time and, and you know, um, you know, geopolitical major powers today. I mean, that's just totally missing all of those other histories. So I would say this is something that we definitely deal with in the field of history and sport history, I think, especially is something that we are trying to figure how to grapple with and so sort of remain allies with the people who do the who do the good work but maybe don't have the opportunities the c- credentials the way maybe I would yeah that's beautifully said and, and I appreciate you actually making that specific point about credentials because um, I, I do think I, I kind of um, indicated that credentials were the issue uh, when in fact it's really a methodological question much more than a credential question um, so yeah that was that was great uh, folks, we're not trying to deflect from the fact that we have a terrific episode coming up with Kaya McCullough, uh, and we're going to be talking about college sports today, and we are extremely excited to throw to that. Uh, before we do, let me just say, follow the show on Twitter, if you can, at End of Sport Pod. Please rate the show, write a nice review on um, you know, Apple Podcasts. We continue to be weighed down by all the haters out there. Uh, and you know, if, you, if you're up to supporting the show on Patreon, that is always welcome as well. Thanks, everyone. Kaya McCullough is a former UCLA soccer player, a former member of the Washington Spirit, and of the Würzburg Kickers. She is an athlete ally ambassador, host of the Unfiltered podcast, and one of the founding members of the United College Athlete Advocates. Kaya, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You make me sound a lot cooler than I am, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) No, we are absolutely delighted to have you on the show today. And and I think we should just get right into it. Um, So our our first question, um, Kaya, is when we spoke to you for our Guardian story that we'll link in the show notes um, for listeners about union rights for college athletes, you told us, and I'm quoting you now, your words now, um, union rights for college athletes would be revolutionary in a lot of ways. I know firsthand what it's like to have the interests of the institution I played for placed above my own interests and well-being in terms of health and safety, education, and economics. Can you speak a little bit uh, to the ways in which 
the interests of the institutions that you played for were placed above your own during your illustrious college career? Yeah, of course. And I think I want to preface this question just saying, like, my experience playing college was, I think, one of the good ones. I had a really awesome coaching staff, and I think in a lot of ways my institution did support me. So I think that just kind of goes to show that even when you have it almost as good as you can, there's still ways that you kind of get screwed over being a college athlete. Um, You know, I think one of the ways is I, one of the big ways that stands out to me is that I ended up having to change my concentration for my major just because schedule wise, I couldn't fit the classes that I needed and wanted to take into it. I ended up being a political science major with a focus in American politics. Um, But I originally wanted to be a political science major with an emphasis in like race and politics, which I mean, doesn't seem that drastic of a difference. But you know, when you think of college in the context of setting you up for the rest of your life and going to what you want to do for a career, I think, you know, it definitely would have benefited me to be able to take the classes that I wanted to. And that's just one of the ways I also think, um, you know, there's kind of this unspoken rule in college athletics that, like, <laughs> they say it's a 40-hour week or whatever, and they try and monitor that, but, I mean, that's not the case at all. Like, it it ends up being a lot more than just 40 hours, um, just with travel and how they have, like, a normal, at least for soccer, like, a game day counted as only three hours, regardless of the fact that your entire day is spent dedicated to preparing for the game and your sport. So I don't know. Those are just some of the more subtle ways. And like I said, my experience was genuinely, generally pretty okay and not nearly as bad as it could have been, which I think just goes to show that, you know, even in when you have the perfect, not perfect program, but when you have a really awesome supportive program, there are still ways that you're going to get essentially screwed over as a college athlete regardless. Yeah, you mentioned that you you had to change your your major. Was that a decision that you made um, that like you felt you had the full agency and autonomy to to decide, or were you kind of coerced by the the um, by either not individuals within the athletic department, but just by athletics in general, coerced into kind of being forced to change um, your major? It honestly, I think, was more just like a circumstance of like what I was doing. I had my training schedule and, you know, athletes have early enrollment, but that's because we need to be able to coordinate our classes with our training schedule because training comes first in a lot of ways. Um, so it kind of was like me looking at the classes that I needed to take and doing everything and anything I could to try and make it work. And then me having to essentially pivot and be like, well, that's not going to be in my cards for me. So I I wouldn't say that I was like coerced, but I was definitely forced in, you know, this kind of nonchalant way because it just wasn't going to work with my schedule. My schedule wasn't going to move. So I had to work around my soccer schedule. Yeah. And, and one, one other thing that I was curious, you, you, you mentioned that like your game days were, they approached that sort of three hours. Could you kind of just briefly walk us through what an actual like game day looks like with travel, food, like basically everything that you have to do? Um, because I think a lot of our listeners don't fully understand like 
I, a game day is is a, a a huge day in the life of an athlete. Yeah, so when we're traveling, it would be, you know, we had to get up at a certain time to do like a walk around so we could get up and move. And then, you know, we have pregame meal, which, you know, if you if you absolutely have to for school, you can miss, but ordinarily no. And I guess that, you know, my <laughs> my experience might be different than other people's, but this is just how my program works. So we'd have pregame meal and then, you know, we'd have time to do whatever. But in that time, you really don't want to do anything that's going to distract you or mess you up um, in terms of getting ready for the game. So there's like that aspect of it as well. And then you have the actual travel to the field, um, which happens like. Two, depending on how far away it is, we usually stayed pretty close to the field, but like, which happens probably two to two and a half hours before the game. And then you have <laughs> the pregame before the warm up where you're kind of just sitting in the locker room, getting ready, getting your stuff on. And then you have your warm up that happens for like an hour. And then you have the actual game. And then you have post game, which is like <laughs> getting everything together. A lot of times, when I was on campus, if a game was at seven, I wasn't getting home until like midnight because I was having to play the whole game, which for soccer is 90 minutes, obviously, plus if there's extra time or what have you. And then you go back to the locker room, you got to get your post game nutrition and then you got to shower. And then I often would go out with my parents to go get food. So it's just like this long ordeal. And, you know, I wouldn't change it just because... <laughs> I, I love soccer, but it is just like a large time of commitment that I don't think a lot of people realize. So one question that I have, just to kind of go back to the prior discussion <clears throat> about sort of having to switch the concentration within your major. So say, for example, you had you had kind of decided like, no, I, I definitely want to stay within this concentration of the major. Like what would have happened? I guess what would have been the, the consequences of doing that just to kind of make it as concrete as possible? I mean, hypothetical, I have no idea what would have happened. It wasn't really a path that I wanted to go down and challenge, um, which is saying something because I think I'm very <laughs> contrarian in a lot of ways. But um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I can tell you that I would not be able to miss the number of practices that would, you know, require me to take some of the classes that I would have to take. And you know, and that's just like, again, it seems like a subtle change. I was originally a STEM major and I ended up changing to poli side just because I think it's quite clear that's kind of where my interests align a little bit better. But um, it's hard to be a student or a college athlete and like take STEM classes. Like it's very few and far between. I wouldn't say that people are like discouraged from doing engineering or anything like that, but once you get into the realm of having to do like lab classes and like all that stuff. And I went through almost every single prereq for <laughs> STEM. So I like kind of can see both sides of it. It's hard. It's hard to be a STEM major because there's a lot less flexibility than the humanities, I think, which is why you sometimes see like college athletes doing what are quote unquote easy majors just because it's hard to fit it into your schedule and it's hard to like have the leeway to be able to both compete at an elite level for your sport and also try and succeed in the classroom a lot of times there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of help from professors a lot of times um 
Oh, another thing I just thought of, like, I, as I'm applying for law school now, I, like, don't have very many connections with professors because I never had time to go to office hours, which, you know, seems like the smallest thing. But now I'm, like, reflecting. I'm like, well, I wish I had better um, relationships with these professors so that I could get letters of rec and all that stuff. So I don't know. It just really permeates in really nuanced ways that I think people probably wouldn't sit there and think, oh, well, because they just don't have to deal with that component of like scheduling. Absolutely. And and I didn't mean to, so, and I, I could have phrased that question better. I'm not trying to, to blame any, any college athlete for not, you know, sticking with whatever major they wanted, right? Because it, well, A, it shouldn't be incumbent on the, the college athlete to like insist on this, right? That's a lot of pressure and that's a lot of work to do. But also when you have this larger apparatus of the sort of sport, uh, the athletics department, the, the sport administration, and not to mention kind of coaches or whatever that are, you know, behind the decision or sort of want athletes to select majors that, that neatly kind of fall around the parameters of what is required of them for their sport. So I did, I didn't mean for that question to come off as like, why didn't you do this? But just, um, because I, I, you know, I, um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to kind of, to kind of state that, um, and then your comment too. I'm glad that you brought up the the thing about the relationships with professors because you know when time is absolutely of the essence, and so much of your time is supposed to be dedicated towards sports and generating kind of that revenue and that cultural capital for the university that the university is going to use for you know decades. I mean that it, it like you said it may seem like a minor thing, but it's actually really really crucial for college athletes who who may want to go into graduate or professional school. So I'm so glad that you raised that issue. You just made me think of like. Like, beyond that, it's just interesting because you kind of oftentimes go into classes with, like, this preconceived notion that, like, you're just going to be a dumb athlete. And that was a lot of times something I felt like I was actively fighting against. Like, I went out of my way to try and participate more, um, to try and break that kind of stigma that was, or that bias, I'll say, maybe, that was held against athletes. Um, both by our peers and by professors. That was just like a little tidbit that I was reminded of. No, absolutely. And what you're just what you're describing, Kaya, like this is what we talk about a lot. And I think actually, though, is we talk about it precisely because it's missing from most of the sort of national conversation. The fact that the main problem with the the educational dimensions of what happens for college athletes, it's not that sort of really um, uh, spotlighted UNC corruption scandal, right? The paper classes, this idea that athletes are literally being denied an education altogether or that they're cheating, right? Like these are the things that grab it, that are headline grabbers, but they're not what happens at most institutions. But that yeah. doesn't mean that the educational dynamics at most ed institutions are as beneficial to the athletes as they should be. Because what you've been describing to us is the fact that in the best case scenario, and I use, I use Duke exactly the same way you're using UCLA here, right? And my experience is at Duke. I also think that Duke is doing it as well as one can within the context of the system. And what I see is still a system that is fundamentally failing the athletes, just in the same way that you're articulating, because it's not possible for people with the constraints that college athletes have 
to get the full education that is promised to them, right? And it's promised to you as your compensation. That's yeah. what you're getting in return for your work. But the thing that you're getting isn't the same as what other students are getting, not because, and you, you really highlight this beautifully, not because of your aptitudes, right? But because of the demands that are placed upon you that make it impossible to get everything the institution is supposed to be offering. And that doesn't even include the fact, as you were pointing out, that you are also confronted with the prejudices of other students and prejudices of faculty members, which is a really critical piece as well, right? And often, very often at these predominantly white institutions, it's a fundamentally racialized piece as well. I couldn't have said it better myself. I <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. Um, okay, well, here, I, I want to slightly pivot here to something that is related, um, which is that in recent days, I, I received a copy of an email sent by the Senior Vice Provost for Business Operations at the University of North Carolina to faculty at the institution regarding the maintenance and installation of so-called spotter EDU beacons for surveilling the attendance of campus athletic workers in the classroom based on their cell phones, I suppose. And there's like an app that goes with it. I have um, a few very significant concerns about this, not least the fact that with surveillance, right, comes punishment. The surveillance, as you kind of pointed out, like you were like, well, I can be hypothetical about this in terms of like what would have happened to me if I didn't listen to the directions about which classes to take, right? But the point is, if you're surveilling people, if you're monitoring them, you're doing it because if they're not doing what you want them to do, something's going to happen to them, right? To make sure that they are doing what you want them to do. And actually at UNC, Ted Tados has confirmed that the punishment that has happened in the past for athletes for this exact thing, i.e. missing class, comes in the form of corporal punishment, which is to say running, right? But force running, not running for performance, not running for health, running as a punishment, so punishing the body, and also cleaning the weight room, among other things. I think what this email also confirms is the complicity of faculty. The fact that faculty are being invited to participate in the regulation and discipline, which is to say the exploitation of campus athletic workers in their classes. It's sickening, uh, although not surprising, given everything we know about status coercion, as Aaron Hatton has called it, in college athletics. Now, all this is preamble. Kaya, as a former athlete yourself, as you've been describing to us, I'm just curious whether you experienced or witnessed any kind of regulation like this, whether it was these kind of like technological, whether it was technological, whether it was from, um, you know, employees of the athletic department, graduate assistants, whatever else checking, in other words, classroom checkers. Um, was that something that was going on for you? Um, this is an inch. I have kind of an interesting perspective on this because um, both my parents were college athletes as well. They both met at UCLA. Um, so I know for a fact that something like that has happened for a long time for football. Um, like my dad used to say or says that they used to have like a coach that <laughs> that was designated as somebody that would come like check to make sure that they were all in their classes for football players. I personally haven't experienced this because um they give us a little bit of leeway being like a non-football sport but and i can't exactly confirm this but you know i feel like that is something that still might continue um for football athletes which i think is a really 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 interesting piece of that because it's it's the football athletes which is arguably like the most racialized group of college athletes on campus um, and that makes me feel a little bit icky still. And 
you know, it's one thing that they, like, you know, will try and describe it away as, like, being as if the football players need the most support. Um, but I don't know. So, again, like, I can't exactly confirm. But I know that that is something that has happened in the past. Um, I never witnessed it myself. So I don't want to be spreading rumors or anything. But I think it definitely is within the realm of possibility that it very well is still happening across campuses in a less formalized way um, consistently. So, Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, and also the longevity of this system, right? Because what, what's interesting is this is different for you, Kaya, but from a faculty perspective, I mean, like most faculty do not understand these dynamics. And they don't understand that when athletic departments ask for the, any kind of checkup, whether it is like, a, whether it is allowing people into their classes to do this sort of checking, allowing technology into their classes. But what you also hear about in many institutions are status reports, for instance, that athletes are asked, uh, th- th- sorry, that faculty are asked to fill out out, uh, read the athletes in their classes. We have um, other kinds of academic coordinators checking in. And I mean, the reason I want to underline this for any faculty who are listening, anytime you provide information to the athletic department about athletes in your classes, you might as well consider yourself to be talking to the police, right? Like any information you provide can and will be used against those athletes. That's the reason for that information. There's absolutely no reason to assume that the coaching staff is going to use that in order to better the experience of the athletes. It's the job of faculty to look after the academic interests of athletes in their classes because they are students like your other students. It is not the job of coaches. The coaches are worried about performance and they are worried about their own jobs. And so it is a flat lie for them to suggest that what their first interest is, is the athlete's academic performance in the classroom. I just don't take that at face value. And one other thing I want to say about it is it doesn't just happen at the Power 5 schools. I have heard from faculty elsewhere about the fact that it has at much smaller schools. They have the surveillance technology in the classroom. They have status reports to fill out. I've even heard of an anecdote in which students were freaked out when they had to have a classroom that was atypical because they were worried they wouldn't be able to demonstrate their attendance. That was at a non-Power 5 school, right? So, I mean, this is a tremendously pervasive phenomenon across the country. I, yeah, I, I can only describe that (laughs) this early in the morning is something that gives me the ick that just makes me feel really uncomfortable. Absolutely. And so maybe this is a good time to transition to talking, uh, Kaya, about the work that you do uh, specifically with United College Athlete Advocates. So perhaps to be a little bit blunt, can you kind of walk us through uh, what the organization about is about and what your aims are in doing this work? Yeah, so essentially, it's a group of me and a friend um, who I knew from, you know, just kind of like our crossing networks. And he came to me, Andrew Cooper, he came to me and he was like, hey, like, I think this is, you know, a movement that could get some momentum. Like, this is something that could be super powerful. Um, And we essentially assembled a team of people who were really passionate about this work um, in arguing for, you know, college athlete rights, essentially. And we decided that we wanted to create something, an organization, um, a group, whatever you want to call it, that was focused on empowering athletes, essentially, 
um, doing that through building a community, doing that through elevating college athlete voices, doing that through eventually hoping to like actually shift power dynamics in sports. Cause I think it's just something that I, I think a lot of my problem with the college athlete, like right movement so far has been sort of, it hasn't been led by athletes in any sort of way. And, you know, as I'm describing to you now, there's a lot of nuance that I think people who haven't lived through it and who haven't done it don't really understand. Um, and for that reason, you know, I feel like any sort of real, tangible, important progress is going to be made with athletes at the forefront, if not like very involved. And so I think that's kind of the objective that we had in mind in creating United College Athlete Advocates UCAA, which is the easier way to say it. But, um, you know, we really went into it with the goal of, like, not trying to replicate or just simply mirror the systems that we were trying to combat. Um, I think, you know, any system or any movement that kind of just perpetuates the same hierarchical structure or power dynamics of what we see now in college athletics is something that's doomed to fail and that honestly doesn't have athletes best interests in mind and so we really created it with the hope of just you know having an athlete for an athlete forward movement um and whatever you know shape it takes from athletes so i mean it's hard because you know we ultimately have like the end goal of shifting power dynamics in sports but that really can take whatever form athletes see fit which i think is something that's super unique and something that i really value and cherish about what we're building now with ucaa yeah you you mentioned that the the shifting of power dynamics which i think is like We've been talking about this on the show for so long about how the structure in collegiate athletics is so inherently problematic due to its rigid power hierarchy that it's like, in in our view, might be unreformable, just incapable of any reform. If you, as an athlete or from your perspective, would you say like the main problem uh, with these power dynamics is it's a whole bunch of non-athletes who are invested in making money off of working uh, athletic laborers that are making all of the decisions. Absolutely. And I get frustrated with like all kinds of sport discourse, especially like now with the Olympics, with people who just quite frankly do not know what they're talking about. They don't know what it's like to be an elite athlete. And to be honest, like, I don't know if this sounds like elitist or whatever, but it's like, if you don't have that expertise, there's only so much that you can contribute to the discourse <laughs> regarding certain things. And I think, you know, especially with like institutions like the NCAA, like these people, most of them probably have no idea. And like you said, they're, they're gaining capital off the backs of these athletes. And I just think it's a fundamentally flawed system. Just in general, though, I don't think that's elitist at all. I think that's expertise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's exactly what it is. I think you're 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 articulating that you have a whole host of experiences and expertise that literally nobody who has not participated can offer the discourse. They can offer something else, but they can't offer that. And and I think like part of the the movement is to get that 
expertise and experience to be legitimized in very real and tangible forms, not just in terms of listening, but in actually influencing policy and procedures within the NCAA. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've learned so much even just, you know, going through the process of trying to build UCAA and like just the the lack of representation that athletes have in the NCAA is astonishing for lack of a better word. It's horrible and um you know, that's something that we want to change. I think athletes should have a much larger voice in the decision-making that's essentially shaping their entire future and their athletic careers, their academic careers. Um, college are some, is some of the most formative years of your life, and these athletes don't have too much control over <laughs> theirs. So... Yeah, and kind of one thing that I that you said that I wanted to um, emphasize, because I think this is really important, is that I think over the last few years, and I think especially with the kind of rise of like name image likeness kind of discussions, that there's been a rush, it seems like from our perspective of people to like become experts very quickly and to say like, I'm an expert um, because I have this background that, you know, probably doesn't involve being like a D1, D2, or even D athlete, as you talked about. Um, but I know how to change sports, right? I know how to, because I realized all of a sudden within the last five years, this is a huge issue. And therefore, like, I think I can change, I can change the world of college sports. Um, and so I think the fact that your group focuses on, as you said, like athlete centered and athlete forward, um, ideas um, and kind of action that is just so crucial because like you said at the end of the day like athletes seem to be empowered to speak up and to um, dictate or, or not dictate but influence the shape of where things are going and not people that do not have expertise in sport or sports studies or whatever I mean really sports saying oh I think this is what's best for these other people right um, I, I think that's a huge huge problem and so I know like end of sport that's just what we so appreciate what you all are doing is that you are maintaining the emphasis on athlete forward and athlete centered um, ideas and actions yeah no I think the moment that it isn't is the moment that I will riot <laughs> So I'm making sure that it's on track with that. But, um, I, and you know, that's not to say that like athletes have all the answers. I definitely don't. And <laughs> athletes as a population don't, but I think something, like you said, it's just keeping it athlete centered, athlete forward, and hopefully connecting athletes with people who have their best interests in mind, um, and who can work with them to then build something that's even better for them. So. Absolutely. And and one thing that I, I I'm just thinking about as as you're talking is that like now there are uh, quite a few different sort of athlete mobilizations or movements um, like uh, college athlete unity, um, which we've talked about on the show before, and a number of other like great player movements. Just for our listeners, what kind of distinguishes the UCAA community from other communities and and maybe distinguish is the wrong word not that you're different but but just like what sort of characteristics um does uca the ucaa community offer that perhaps other um organizations or mobilizations um don't necessarily have yeah so i think you know something 
that we hope is kind of the distinguishing factor is that this is something that is long-term and sustainable. It's not just something that kind of flares up and, you know, gets heard and seen wide and far, but that kind of fizzles out. We're hoping to build something that's sustainable so that when we're dead, it can still function. Um, I mean, <laughs> if we still have an earth and we still have <laughs> the system that is happening, hopefully it'll crumble by then, not the earth, but the system. Um, something that is sustainable. So, you know, we're like, we're pivoting, we're rebuilding. Athletes are a very, very, very tough group to organize because as I kind of described, you have a lot going on when you're a college athlete and there's not a lot of room for revolutionary change all the time. So I think something that we're just trying to really focus on right now, especially is just building it in a way that is sustainable and organizing in a way that is sustainable and it's trial and error. Um, you know, the first we, we kind of like launched and stuff and, you know, we expected to have a lot of these um, athletes just kind of swarm and, you know, we were wrong. And so now we're pivoting and we're figuring out the other best ways to like organize athletes, which I think is something that a lot of groups may or may not do. Um, so I would say the key word to take out of that long spiel I just had was sustainability. Yeah, Kai, that, that is um, a really interesting point you brought up because we were thinking about this a lot last year, right? During, um, you know, We Are United and, and especially the football-related organizing that was happening in your part of the country on the West Coast. Um, and we talked to Otito Obonia, who was involved in that. Um, and it did seem very clear that there are tremendous challenges to organizing college athletes, in part simply because you all know that you're only going to be there for a very limited amount of time. And that the time that you have there is this sort of like opportunity, along with all the other stuff that goes with it, the exploitation and everything else. But it is also, for most of you in most sports, an opportunity to hopefully leverage yourselves into a professional opportunity, right? And of course, now it's going to be further complicated by NIL and trying to capitalize on whatever um, opportunities are available off the field in order to monetize the work that you're doing, which may in fact pose a, an additional barrier to organizing precisely because there's only so much time you have, right? This is what you explained to us. How are you going to do school and sport at the same time? Well, now it's like, how are you going to do school do school and sport and NIL, right? That's really difficult to do. And then where does the organizing fit into that, right? Because organizing is work and that political work is a challenge as well. Um, and these are all structural barriers that are not your fault. Like what I'm trying to lay out here is not like, well, this is a bad idea, but rather like this is actually why this is so essential because athletes do need to have advocates. You need, you need to have organizations that are going to fend for your best interest, because otherwise you're just going to get swallowed up by the system. The system is going to devour you exactly as it wants to. How can athletes get involved with your organization? And what kind of strategies are you trying to use right now in order to do some of that organizing work, given these type of things? Yeah, um, right now we are trying to do less like broad focus. I mean, honestly, like we're still in talks every single day. We talk every single day about <laughs> what's the best way moving forward. And, you know, it might be something where it's more a tar like a more targeted approach, especially, you know, we're focusing on the power five right now because there are just so many college athletes. If you start going outside of that for division one, for division two, for division three, I mean, 
we want this to be as grandiose as we can get it. But um, right now, that's why there's only so many of us. Um, so yeah, I think we're kind of just like targeting our efforts more specifically at schools and trying to implement structures on individual campuses that are more sustainable and um, like originally we had kind of envisioned it going through the approach of like organizing around um, specific impact coalitions but that may or may not be the best way forward I don't know it's it's my point is it's something that's evolving every single day and as we're trying to figure it out we're just hoping again to make it super sustainable um, in terms of how athletes can get involved um, I mean, look at our website. <laughs> People can contact me over social media or whatever. We're pretty open. Um, but yeah, there's our website, ucaa.one for now. Great. Well, shifting a little bit here. Now, last summer, we saw some of the most powerful labor movements and that we've perhaps seen in sport ever between the WNBA and the NBA strikes and college athletes voicing their entirely legitimate issues with a structure that systematically exploits and harms them. As we've discussed already, we saw athletes for some of the biggest changes we have seen to the incredibly conservative, we'll call it sports world. Athletes were able to put symbols on their jerseys, protests during national anthems or before games are becoming normalized. Uh, and athletes show that they have so much power in changing their, their own working conditions. My question for you is, following these huge movements and the pretty impressive changes that they forced, what do you think is the future of the labor movement in sport? Perhaps in, in other words, what can college athletes or athletes in general do to make, to make sure that the temperature stays hot and to ensure that these changes um, continue into the future? Uh, yeah, I, it was a pretty powerful year to be a part of, you know, the athletic landscape. Um, I, being sort of a political activist myself, I was very encouraged at times and very not encouraged at times. Um, but <laughs> I think the future of the labor movement is, in general, a positive one as long as athletes keep their foot on the gas. I think the moment that there is complacency on athletes' end is when things might fizzle out. And I know that's a lot of a burden to place on athletes. But at the end of the day, like, we're all fighting against these kind of systems of oppression every single day. We have capitalism here in the good old USA. And, like, that's number one. So I think, you know, just kind of continuing to stand up and fight. And that sounds so cliche. I, I recognize that. But making sure that the foot just stays on the gas. Like, there's, you have to speak up for, you know, your rights as an athlete you have to stick up for your rights as a human and I think the moment that you stop doing that and again like like you said it's not your fault as an athlete that you have to do that it's just kind of the condition that you're in um so I just think you know to make sure the temperature stays hot it people just need to cons consistently keep I don't want to say petitioning, but consistently keep fighting for what they deserve and 
you know, educating themselves and realizing that there are problems happening. One of my problems with like the or that I see in especially like the college athlete labor movement is like athletes don't know what they don't know. A lot of people don't even know that they're being exploited in this like really sinister, insidious way. And so I think, you know, just continuing to like find resources about what perhaps you're going through or like I don't know, just educating yourself continually as an athlete, as a person, I think will lead to continued um, momentum for any sort of labor movement and sport as well. Yeah, and I think there's also an onus on everyone who participates in sport, observers, fans, academics, critical scholars to take on that labor themselves as well, right? Like we can't just expect... you. You've you've painted an incredibly strong um, and illuminative picture about all of the things that athletes, particularly college athletes, have to go through just to like live day to day within that structure. How much labor is actually expected of them and all with all their different hats on, with their student hat on, with their um, athletic worker hat on, with their brand, like with, with everything that they're doing, they're already put taking on so much labor. So there is a lot of onus on people like myself, faculty members, on others fans on on people who are allies of athletes to speak up and to contribute to the discourse and i think that that's missing quite often like fans put their little blinders on and just want to watch like games on 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 an evening or on a, on a weekend and i think that we have to keep the pressure on those folks as well oh no absolutely i think a lot of times some of the worst people to deal with as an athlete are like so-called fans who are like "Mm, you should just shut up and play you're ruining my entertainment experience and i'm like i am a human being please do not place your your feelings about anything on me like this is my job this is what i'm doing to sustain myself like i don't know yeah i absolutely agree that a lot of the burden should be falling on fans everybody who are allies of sport and even if they wouldn't consider themselves an ally of sport like somebody anybody who participates in the system of sport um definitely has the responsibility to help ensure that athletes are being treated in the correct way um and i think that's failing in a lot of ways like you said I really appreciate what you just said about fandom as someone who has um, written a book on that exact topic with uh, essentially the thesis that you just articulated. Um, it It is, it is truly um, mind boggling and also something that I think like all fans should be bludgeoned over the head with the fact that what they are doing, what they are extracting from athletes causes you as the worker, as you put it, you're like, I am doing work right now and you are treating me as if I am not a human. (laughs) And I think that that really summarizes everything that's sort of wrong with the kind of business of sport that we have, as we know it in this society and the way in which we, you know, normalize, naturalize, condone fans to engage with athletes and what it does on top of hurting you in terms of just that interpersonal dynamic, right? Like it feels bad to any person to feel dehumanized for any reason. So if someone's looking, shouting at you and treating you like you're not a person doing work, that's always going to feel bad. But what it also does 
is that it completely submarines any hope for solidarity there, right? Like if you are trying to push for better working conditions, the people who should be your allies in that project are the fans who supposedly love you, right? And cheer for you. Like literally what this fandom is supposed to be is cheering for you, yet they can't actually bring themselves to cheer for your working conditions, right? Or your better, the betterment of your own well-being. Um, so like, I just, I always want to underline that because we don't get a chance to hear athletes saying it as clearly, concisely, and poignantly as you did, right? Like this is actually what it feels like because what, that's not what the sports media is doing, right? The sports media is completely distorting those kinds of dynamics because who's their market? Their market are the fans. So they're catering to the fans. They're giving the experience that fans want. And that completely, I don't know, like it just occludes what you are actually going through. Yeah, that's a really good point too. <laughs> they, and again, like that just kind of, I'm like cringing right now just because it, it, it seems so obvious to me how it is this like ripe environment for exploitation of athletes like across the board because again, like these people, these clubs, these organizations, they're catering towards fans and they're catering towards money. And I think, you know, anytime we have that, as you can see, like there's going to be exploitation. Um, that's just the nature of that system. So I'm very much a fan of calling it like it is. And I do think, like you said, media kind of distorts that in a way and doesn't want to just call it out for how hypocritical behavior is by people who are, you know, surrounding the sports space. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, recently we, we have, and we, we mentioned this already, but I want to come back to it, this sort of fundamental change in that if we're talking about like athletes as humans who have basic rights, all right, college athletes had been denied via the principle of amateurism, um, you know, for decades, the ability to benefit uh, economically from your name, image, and likeness, right? I mean, obviously everyone understands this and we know that this has now changed. Um, and there's no, there's no debate over whether college athletes deserved NIL rights. There's no plausible good faith argument against that. However, we have discussed previously the concern that the shift to NIL as the sole form, the sole, and this is the key, the sole form of compensation for college athletes, as opposed to an actual wage from their employers, universities, that continues to put the, the, the sole use of NIL as the wage continues to put a significant burden on athletes by increasing your workload in the form of promotional work. And, and I think this is also part of it, essentially fetishizing gig work and branding as an inherent good that should be pursued. You have spoken out, for instance, on the fact that, like, why are we celebrating athletes signing up with Barstool? Yeah, great point, Kaya. Um, <laughs> so I'm just curious, where do you stand on all of this? This, this whole sort of the NIL piece and this sort of this love fest we currently are having with American capitalism, it seems like, via college athletes. I mean, like you said, I think NIL is great. It's a step in the right direction, but I also just think that, you know, maybe it was gone about in a very weird way, um, and then you have circumstances where, like, athletes are then doing things like aligning themselves with Barstool because of the hype and hoopla of it. Um, so, you know, I, I do think NIL is a great thing, and I'm very happy for college athletes who are able to use their NIL. Um, but, you know, in terms of somebody that 
has been through it and has been without it, I definitely think that there should just be, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is a radical stance, but I do think college athletes should be getting paid. It's a full-time job. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, however we want to zigzag around it, I think college athletes should be getting paid. Um, and like you said, it, it does increase workload. Like, I don't want to have to go and reach out and find my own brand sponsorships. And, um, you know, a lot of times in the professional world, that's done through the use of an agent. Like, college athletes can't use agents. That's eligibility because am- amateurism. So essentially it's like again putting this burden like you said on college athletes to like do something that essentially they have no background in ever doing trying to like market themselves as essentially like a teenager still um i don't know i think there are a lot of problems with how nil rolled out um earlier i think there's a lot of good that can come from it there's also a lot of bad that can come from it and i think at the end of the day college athletes should be paid (laughs) as employees so and it's also like one one of the the big things that i even just talking to people who are fans of college athletics but aren't necessarily critical of college athletics is this just like the the typical capitalist response to um labor movements it's to to attempt to um, make a gig economy one and two subsidize like set subsidize mostly public institutions um from paying their employees um they can still pay nick saban his 11 million dollars but the private sector now is responsible for paying the the laborers which is like in every other context we like agree as a society is messed up, right? <laughs> in every other context, if you were to to go into a factory and say, "Oh, we're just gonna, you're gonna get paid by this third party company," um, and you may or may not get paid like the rest of your employees, it'll depend on market conditions. People would would get up in arms and lose their mind uh, about that stuff. But in college sport, we still like take this archaic view towards our our the or the laborers who put up the the product and i think that this is just like another deflection and diversion away from getting at the power structure that you have continued to articulate in this podcast the the true issues of the power structure in the NCAA. So I really appreciate everything you're saying about nil and about the, the possible problems. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. <laughs> and I think too, I mean, you know, NIL doesn't speak to the problems that, that Kai, you mentioned at the outset, which is for example, like having to change your concentration because, because the scheduling conflict. So that's the other thing is it, it, it maybe helps with like one part of it, which is the economic exploitation, but it doesn't, do anything with um, the issues with classes, with funneling athletes towards certain, you know, majors, not to mention, you know, abusive coaching tactics, you know, use of plantation logic and, and sort of and language and that sort of stuff. So there are so many issues that still need to be addressed. And I think a lot of people are ready for quote unquote victory. They're sort of ready for this issue to be done and solved, not to mention the like, and I know we saw this, we saw like some academics and some advocates that were as you talked about, we're like immediately trying to figure out how to sort of profit from NIL as well, which is also sort of very troubling that people are rushing to like make money from this whole thing too. When like, 
you know, our role is not to continue to make money from athletes. Our role is not to continue to exploit them. So that was also very, very, very troubling that they kind of emerged like immediately, at least on Twitter that we saw. No, yeah. I think, icky, you might say. Yes, icky. Like, if we're just shifting these same power dynamics to another entity, it doesn't solve anything, which again, I kind of emphasized when I was talking about UCAA, like that does not solve anything. So yeah, I definitely agree. Like NIL is a good thing. Step in the right direction. It is nowhere near enough to, <laughs> to remedy all the harm that has been done <laughs> to the college athlete community. Just a general note. If you are a faculty member um, listening to this podcast and you are thinking about creating a college athlete endorsement consulting firm to capitalize off of new opportunities afforded by nil please end listening to this show immediately <laughs> and unfollow and unsubscribe the show that is not a good look <laughs> i love that so Kaya, we'd really like to return to the roots of your own activism and kind of get a sense of how you gauge where, for example, the act of kneeling stands now. And so at UCLA, you were kneeling as early as 2017. And in fact, in high school, you refused to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, which is absolutely amazing. So as someone who has been really intimately involved in using sport as a platform to highlight structural racism, police brutality, and other forms of discrimination, how do you gauge or appraise where that movement stands today? For example, does kneeling have the same impact it once did? And at what point do you, at this point, what do you think is the most effective way to really combat white supremacy through sport? Yeah, um, I'll probably come off as harsh when I say this because honestly, 2020 made me like reevaluate <laughs> my role in sports activism and sports activism in general in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I started refusing to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in high school, started kneeling in 2017. I think, you know using sport as a platform to kind of protest these things, whatever it may be, has always been a very, very powerful thing. But I do think it has been something that has been few and far in between. I mean, you see every once in a generation, you'll have, you know, the Jackie Robinsons or the Colin Kaepernick's of the world who are like doing these big, big, big things and then kind of Stuff will happen, and then it kind of falls to the wayside. Quite frankly, I think that athletes aren't doing enough. Um, I think that there's a lot more that can be done. I am of the the camp that believes that as a sports, um, as an athlete, you know, you have this responsibility to move social change forward, and that's kind of just my worldview that I've <laughs> that I've developed through all my work, I guess. Um, in terms of kneeling specifically, I don't think it has the same impact. I continue to kneel, and I think when people don't kneel, it says... It's like it's weird because it's shifted. I really think that it used to be, at least when I started, like this really powerful statement about like where you stood on certain issues, whereas now I feel like, especially last year, and especially in my experience in the NWSL, like, I feel like kneeling was very co-opted, and it was seen as a way to just seem not racist. 
I don't think people were doing it with intention. I don't think people were doing it with the actual forethought about what it meant and what it meant to the movement as a whole. I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, the entire like Black Lives Matter movement got co-opted by businesses and by influencers and by people who didn't really do the work to understand what it actually stood for. Um, and I think, you know, kneeling is kind of the microcosm of that. Um, do I, <laughs> what do I think is the most effective way to combat white supremacy in sport? I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. I'm, I'm trying to put my foot in a lot of different puddles to figure out that <laughs> question. But I think a lot of it is, you know, holding these institutions accountable. A lot of what we're seeing with white supremacy, I mean... I feel like where we're at now in the movement and as a country is like these really blatant and explicit instances of racism are being called out and snuffed out pretty quickly. Um, however, it's the more insidious, I love that word, the more insidious instances of white supremacy that are still flourishing in our current climate. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with holding institutions accountable, holding organizations accountable, making sure that, you know, I, the fact that there are just like so many organizations, sports organizations that don't have, like, they don't have somebody hired to do diversity, equity, and inclusion is just baffling to me. I mean, that's like, I think a major starting point is like, even just doing that. Um, I don't know. Again, like, this is something that I question every single day. Like, what is the best way to do this? And I think it's going to take a lot of collective action by athletes. But I think the way that this system functions now in general, like, not just for, like, college athletes, but for even professional athletes, is, like, you are a laborer. And it's, like, sport is labor. I don't think people, like, contextualize that all the time. Like, that is your job. That is your living. And especially for women, um, like, it's not great pay and you risk, like, financial instability for standing up for these things a lot of times. So, again, like, it's kind of this Cats 22 situation where it's not going to change unless you speak up. But if you speak up, like, you might get fired and exiled. And so, I don't know. That's it's something, again, I still work through every single day, but I think action is at the forefront of combating that. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the fact that you very um, concisely summarize a lot of the issues, right, that sport is labor and that athletes are taught that that's not the case, right, that they're doing it for the love of the game and for passion, when it, that is used as sort of like propaganda to to cover up the fact that the, that they the athletes are laborers, and then of course your point about how female athletes and I would say like black and brown female athletes in particular, right, they are risking the most um, in so many ways, and they they are harmed the most um, within this whole you know cis white supremacist sport apparatus. Um, 
And, you know, something even you said about the whole, you know, organizations lacking, you know, even DEI people. And, you know, I, I share your struggles with sort of uh, how to understand what needs to be done because DEI people, right, they are hired to work within a cis white supremacist environment. So, like, their actions are automatically constrained. And, you know, I, I was a, a D1 swimmer, and so I think about swimming a lot. And USA Swimming has, you know, out of however 61 people who have pictures on their website is like staff people working for USA Swimming, they have three black people working for them. All of them are either working in DEI or quote unquote community engagement. So, you, you know, these, these people, even if they have them are hired in these positions and they're automatically constrained. And then the idea is that black and brown people don't have any other expertise except to serve as DEI people within these cis white supremacist organizations. So, I, I mean, it's sort of hard to figure out where to kind of direct one's energies because there's so much sort of going wrong because of all these constraints that they go down to its foundational structure. Yeah, there's a there's just like you said, there's so many <laughs> there's so many things to deal with as like white supremacy branches out and causes other issues. I mean, there's racism, there's homophobia, there's transphobia, there's like mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. different issues right. that stem from this central kind of entity of white supremacy that it's like that is just such an overwhelming question and I have I mean something that gives me hope is that like I'm only 23 so hopefully I have some more time to like figure it out mm-hmm. um because I mean there needs to be a lot of change yeah you articulated it so well um sport is labor and sport is labor within a racial capitalist system that is um, inherently gendered um, and also part of this sort of patriarchal um, and paternalistic society. And I, I, th- I think a lot of that really came out in the response to the last question. And I want to just probe a little bit deeper into that in, in terms of have you received any pushback for doing things like refusing to cite the, the Pledge of Allegiance um, or kneeling during the national anthem? And more importantly, I think uh, this is the question I really want to get at. Can you tell us about um, if you have received any pushback? What is what that has shown um, you about society from an athlete's point of view? Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> with the Pledge of Allegiance, I was in high school and that was less related to athletics. But like I straight up got told to go back to Africa for doing that, like to my face. <laughs> I mean, like, it's good, but just like that's if that is the the starting point from which like something as simple as just like not saying the pledge of allegiance then i guess you could like imagine that people are not going to be happy anytime you try and protest like your conditions as a um i guess like a minoritized group in this country so i mean with kneeling I was in a very supportive environment. There's definitely pushback, definitely people who hated what I was doing, definitely people who called me a monkey. Like, there's definitely that. But um, there's also, like, more subtle ways. I feel like in a lot of ways I was ostracized from certain team, not not my college team, um, my professional team. I was just ostracized in a lot of ways. And I think I knew that. I knew that going into an environment where I was, like, not where the dynamics were different where I was getting paid for my labor um I knew that I ran the risk of like you know (laughs) ostracizing myself essentially for having such strong belief 
Um, and you see that consistently. You see that with Kaepernick. You see that with uh, what happened with Megan Rapinoe with the U.S. when she started kneeling. Um, so even though mine has happened on a less, like, large scale, um, there definitely is pushback from these institutions who just, like, don't want you to rock the boat. Nobody wants you to rock the boat ever. That's, like, I've literally been explicitly told that, like, don't rock the boat. That's that's what is expected from you. And so, I don't know. It's it's a tough situation. And I think I've kind of had this, like, awakening in the past few years where I'm like, this is straight up, like, I've kind of come out of the propaganda, um, like one of you said, about, like, oh, I do this for the love of the sport, like, blah, blah, blah. No, I was doing labor is what I was doing. And I feel like being able to come out of that, it's kind of, allowed me to go almost rogue in the context of like an athlete I think I think a lot of my best work and my best change has happened once I've been free of these organizations these institutions that were constraining me as an athlete so operating kind of on the periphery has been ideal for me because I don't feel the fear of getting backlash or having my playing time cut or having my contract waived or any sort of thing like that um so like I can understand having lived it that there is like a very real tangible fear of like not ruining your life but essentially like putting yourself in a really really precarious situation for speaking out about these sort of issues um which is I think why a lot of it doesn't happen a lot of the times, I'm not going to completely, like, say that some people aren't just ignorant in the athletic space, but, um, yeah, I think, especially, like, for women who, like, don't have these million-dollar contracts to fall back on, um, who are already working multiple jobs to try and make ends meet for themselves, um, there's, like, a very real fear of retaliation. That's that's really powerful, Kaya. Um, and just to follow up on that, I think a lot of people have maybe um, a misconception that there is a more welcoming climate in women's sport to the kind of activism you've been describing. And that may be a function principally of sort of what we see in the WNBA, which is, you know, I think one of the most prominent um, platforms for women's sport. It doesn't sound like you have had similar experiences, um, especially professionally. Is there something about soccer? I mean, are, I mean, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at, I'm not trying to beat around it, is like, is there a much whiter culture in soccer? Is that part of what we're looking at here? I think absolutely. Like the WNBA is the blueprint. Um, they are are doing the work. Um, I think they essentially. Like, you could argue that they essentially won the Senate for Democrats in 2020. So absolutely, like, yes. they're, they're doing the work. Um, in terms of soccer, yeah, soccer is a predominantly white, predominantly, like, middle to upper middle class sport with a lot of barriers to entry, um, not a lot of opportunity for black and brown children, and it's gatekept very heavily. Like, honestly, th looking back, like, it's, it's tremendous that I even ended up where I did just because, like, how gatekept the sport is. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's definitely a component of it. It's because soccer's white. There's, like, very few 
um, you know, black women in the sport. And, you know, we can make the argument that black women lead social movements a lot of the times. Um, and I don't know, I, <laughs> the, the black women who are in soccer can't speak up because when they do things happen and they get ostracized, they get retaliated against and the allyship isn't there in the way that it needs to be by non-black teammates. And I don't know, it's just, there's just a lot to say about it. Um, I, I do think the fact that soccer is such a white sport has a very big role to play in why, you know, there isn't as much progress necessarily being made um, within the sport of soccer. So. so I guess what to follow up, one question that I have, um, and this is because I feel like, yeah, that the lack of uh, support and solidarity from white teammates, like in all sports, is pretty glaring. So, like, what do you think white uh, female soccer players could be could and should be doing to support um, their black teammates from anti-black racism? Yeah, I mean, they're not going to be facing the same repercussions just straight up that black teammates will be. I mean, I was having conversations about how I needed to leave my politics off the field and I needed to leave all my worries as black people were getting murdered in the street off the field and just focus on soccer. Like those were conversations I was having daily and I was having to like try and compartmentalize my blackness in a lot of ways, um, which obviously is impossible. I can't take off my skin before every practice and then go play. Um, Last year was just a very hard year. But I think, you know, white women in general in society aren't going to face harm in the same ways. And that's just the structure of white supremacy. That's just the structure of, you know, these patriarchal systems. Like, again, soccer is like such a microcosm, I think, for America in general. Um, as I don't know how often you guys pay attention to like soccer discourse, but oftentimes it makes me reflect on where we are as a country as a whole but yeah I just think white women like they need to do better they straight up need to do better they need to be more allied to black women and take up in arms for them in I don't know it's gonna take them letting go of their whiteness to find solidarity with other women and as we've seen in history that doesn't happen very often I'm not very optimistic about it to be fair so um, yeah, it just, it needs to be better. I, I, there's no other way to say it. It just needs to be better. Absolutely. And I, and I, the way that you described it is, is perfect, right? That, that white female players need to, need to deal with their whiteness and, and confront it and realize that that is something that benefits them. And this is something that, you know, I, I, with, again, I, I, I focus on swimming a lot, but you know, like Simone Manuel, like Natalie Hines and Leah Neal and all these people are like constantly ask these questions about race and racism and BLM. And then, you know, Katie Ledecky, who I really, really like, and I love cheering for her, you know, she doesn't say a peep, you know, and like, she could be asked these questions and she would not receive the same kind of backlash. She wouldn't receive the racism. Um, so I think we absolutely need to be holding white female athletes accountable. Um, otherwise they're supporting white supremacy in my opinion. And when they're being signed, they're supporting white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, and people don't like to hear that. People don't like to hear that, you know, they're, they're contributing to this system that harms. I mean, but we all are in a lot of ways. And so 
it's just taking accountability for that and being able to kind of just pull up your your big grown-up person panties and just saying like I can do better I should be doing better and um how can I better support my black teammates my black and brown teammates Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so related, um, you've been outspoken about the gender politics of coaching and women's sport. So could you walk us through a bit about your perspective on the dynamics of cishet men coaching women in elite sport? Yeah, again, like, I do think that sports are just a reflection of society. And so I feel like in a lot of ways, like, when you have these cishet men in these positions of power, <laughs> where they can quite literally control the lives of women, what do we expect them to do when they've been told their entire lives in society, especially like cis has white men, cis has white men, um, what do we expect them to do? (laughs) Um, It's no surprise that, you know, oftentimes you see these cultures of abuse and stuff. And I'm not saying like, oh, every cis het white man is going to abuse players, whatever, because I've had a really awesome um, male coaches and who have helped me grow as, like, a player and a person a lot. But at the same time, like, especially as you get to these, like, more elite levels, there's just nuances that I don't think that they can understand. And this is coming from somebody who had a very, very capable all-woman staff um, at UCLA for several years. And we were a very accomplished team. I've seen how it functions. It was such a positive experience for me and I think that's probably why a lot of my experience at UCLA was so good is because like the second people the second person that I or third maybe person that I told like hey I want to kneel was my coach and she was like yes like how can we support you let's talk about it how can we support you like it was more than just you know using me for my labor as an athlete it was more than just like getting a paycheck and again, I'm not saying that all cishet men are like this, coaches are like this, but at the same time, like, I feel like solidarity within, you know, women and other, like, non-men um, is a lot higher because there's that similar experience of, like, functioning under this system of the patriarchy and so there's just a lot again there's a lot of nuance that I don't think can be translated from a cishet male coach to like these these women athletes um I don't know I think it just creates these like very uneven power dynamics and um as we can see like it creates these cultures of abuse that are just awful have to live through no doubt um kaya mccullough it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today uh i hope that all of our listeners will follow you on twitter at haya kaya which is h-i-y-a-k-a-i-y-a um you might notice that uh, kaya is verified on twitter uh, <laughs> as she well should be um please 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 uh, follow and support the work that Kaya is doing with her colleagues at the United College Athlete Advocates. Uh, really, you are providing an incredibly honest, um, 
clear and powerful perspective on sport that is sorely missing in almost every sector of the discourse, no matter where you look for it. Uh, it's amazing to me that you are 23 years old. Your voice is one that needs to be amplified. And we were just delighted to have you on our show today. So thank you so much, Kaya. Yeah, thanks so much for giving me the space to, <laughs> to talk about burning institutions to the ground. I love it. <laughs> As do we. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.